the Gospel of Matthew and the chapter, chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel. Um, yes, page number coming up, 978 in the Church Bibles, if you'd like to follow it. So it's the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 6, and we're reading verses 1 to 15. So let's hear together the Word of God. Of course, this is part of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus delivered. So let's hear the word of God, the word of Jesus, in chapter 6, verse 1 of Matthew's Gospel. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father, Who is in heaven? Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let us bow our heads in prayer together. Heavenly Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. And we pray in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, let me again thank your pastor for giving me the privilege of being with you today and of seeking 
uh, to share God's word with you. And uh, my wife Pam and I will certainly be with you in spirit next weekend, may even be with you in flesh also uh, as we see our plans develop uh, during the week. It's going to be a great occasion, great weekend in many ways. Uh, Let me give you a piece of advice for someone who's lived nearly half as long as your your bicentenary. Uh, Leave your pastor alone between now and the weekend. I'm sure that he's nodding furiously or he's already asleep. I don't know which. I think he's agreeing. Uh, There may be lots of things that you think I'd like to talk over with the pastor. little problem I've got or a little issue I'd like to raise with him and uh, spend some time chatting to him. Please don't do it. Uh, That's not gospel I'm giving you. That's just a piece of of, uh, advice. He will have enough on his plate this week, I'm quite sure, Uh, that he would probably value you not phoning him for a little chat and taking some time uh, for him to give you his attention uh, during these particular days as he prepares to be absolutely ready for the time that you're going to enjoy together next week. Uh, This morning I spoke on what I would still, after many years, identify as my text. Uh, I want to take a sort of parallel approach at the beginning tonight, and to ask this, if you were to ask an average congregation what was the best-known text, best-known scripture in the world, uh, there are many who in in our uh, circles, in conservative evangelical circles, would immediately say, well, of course, it's John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and so forth, and you know the rest of that verse. That would be a good answer but I don't think it'd be the right one. Other people would say, oh no, with the last words of Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a, that's a very fine choice, but it's the wrong one. Other people would try to be really clever and say, no, no, the best known words in the Bible are the very first words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What an excellent answer, but it's the wrong one. By far, and to my mind, without any question, whatever, the very best known words, the most familiar words in the whole of Scripture from beginning to end were those read in the course of our Bible reading a few moments ago. And that is the words that begin, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Those words are said by millions of people uh, at every service in the world uh, today and by many people on other occasions too. Millions of people in the course of their life's journey would say those words and not have a clue as to what they were all about. I think of civic events, in other words, where people would draw up an order of service for the opening of a library or some other important civic event And they would almost certainly, if it was done in a liturgical form, they would include the saying of the Lord's Prayer. And so many people would pray these words, say these words, and would not have a clue what they're all about. Many Christians would uh, also say these words and have never really tried to understand in depth what it is that they are saying. So let's try to have a look at them 
uh, in the course of our time together this evening. And the first thing I would say about them is that they are an exclusive prayer. Uh, We call them the Lord's Prayer. Those words don't occur in the Bible, but it's understandable as to why the church over the centuries has come along with that phrase for them. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but the Lord never prayed them, never prayed these words. And you say, well, the argument from silence is uh, a little bit uh, tenuous. No, no, I don't mean an argument from silence. I mean an argument from fact that Jesus never prayed these prayers. And my reason for saying that is this, that in the course of this prayer, the petition is included, forgive us our debts or trespasses or however uh, your particular version of Scripture has it. And we know that Jesus never prayed for forgiveness because he never needed to be forgiven. Hebrews 4.15 would give us that very clearly. Although the Lord Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, he was without sin. So it is an exclusive prayer, uh, not one that he ever prayed, but it, it began with the words, Our Father in heaven. And we use that phrase about the God to whom we are praying uh, very commonly. I'm going to suggest that 95% of the prayers ever prayed by God's people in public or in private begin or nearly begin with the words, Our Father. So we take it as a commonplace. Uh, Surely that's the very best way to pray. It's certainly a very fine way to pray. But we need to realize that to the people who first heard this prayer given to them, to the disciples, and Luke's version tells us that it was one of the disciples who said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. To the disciples, this would have come across as a bombshell. Nowhere in the Old Testament, for example, have I found anybody individually addressing God as Father. Uh, They recognize God as the creator, as the sovereign, as the judge, as the provider, as the supplier of all of their needs. But uh, as far as I know, and I've been studying the scriptures for uh, over 60 years now, uh, I've not found an individual in the Old Testament commonly using that phrase. So it's an exclusive prayer. It is only to be used by those who can properly call God Father. And, uh, of course, not everybody can. If you uh, find in Scripture uh, these words being said um, to uh, some of the readers, the readers actually in in Galatia at the time, uh, but the, the Apostle Paul writes of certain people at that time, Uh, that they are, he says to them, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. But much earlier in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says of those of whom that is not true, he says to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God. And then goes on to say, you belong to your father, the devil. So here we have two groups of people. Those to whom Jesus says, and they were highly religious people, you are of your father, the devil. That's the family to which you belong. Paul writes to the Galatian Christians, and he says, now you are the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So the first thing that gets my attention as I look at the opening part of the, of the text here is to ask the question, 
in whose family are you, am I, as we read these words together. So it's an exclusive prayer intended exclusively for those who've come to faith in Christ and are therefore in God's family. It's not intended to be prayed indiscriminately, uh, and again at some public function or other, by everybody who's there, including those, and there would be those uh, in those gatherings who are atheists or agnostics or uh, pluralists of some kind as far as religious faith is concerned, uh, this prayer is not for them. It is an exclusive prayer. And also, it is an example prayer. Uh, Jesus said, you are to pray like this. This doesn't mean you are always to pray like this or you must only pray like this. Uh, This is not telling us that even that at every public service you must include the words of the Lord's Prayer. There are uh, churches undoubtedly uh, whose services are liturgical. They're uh, in a form which is followed uh, week by week and service by service. And in those, it is probably true that at every service these words are included. That is not what Jesus was saying. So he was not saying you must always pray these words or you must only pray these words. And indeed, thinking of a liturgical uh, form service, there are those who would say, no, no, that's not the way to pray anyway. This would be true of people observing a service like ours tonight. They would say, no, we are not to be praying words that someone else has written maybe hundreds of years before. The right way to pray, it would be said, The right way to pray is from the head and the heart and at the time. The technical word we use for it is extempore praying. We would expect our pastor and those who lead the service not to be reading prayer from a book. We would expect and hope that they would pray from their heads, from their hearts, bearing the present situation in the world, as was so wisely done tonight, or in our own country or in our own hearts, or for members of the fellowship who might not be with us at that particular service, we would say, now that's the way to pray, and it is, it is not the right way to pray. It is, in fact, it is wrong to pray words that someone else has written down maybe centuries before. And having dilated on that subject and made their, made their opinion clear, they would then say, now we'll stand to sing hymn number so-and-so, and it would be the words of a prayer written sometime centuries before, and they'd be encouraged to mean that with all their hearts. It must be thousands of times now that I have begun uh, the day with these words, my father, for another night of quiet sleep and rest, for all the joys of morning light, Thy holy name be blessed. Now with the newborn day, I give myself anew to thee, that as thou willest I may live, and what thou willest be. Whate'er I do, things things great or small, uh, whate'er I speak or frame, thy glory may I seek in all, do all in Jesus' name. My Father, for his sake I pray, thy child accept and bless, and lead me by thy grace today in paths of righteousness. And as you will have guessed, the reason I can remember them so well is that I have said them thousands of times. But I didn't invent those words. I didn't compose them. They were composed by somebody else a very long time ago as words of a hymn. 
So I am taking a set prayer uh, written by somebody else, committed to print, and making them my own. Uh, And one of the reasons I make them my own thousands of times is I can't think of any better. I think they are just wonderful ways in which to begin a day's prayer. So it's an exclusive prayer. It's an example prayer. And in Luke's version, we have the phrase from Jesus, when you pray, say. Or in Matthew's case, this is how you should pray. And again, not always every time you pray. And pray nothing but these words. Nevertheless, it is a prayer that is exclusive and an example to us. I want us then to go on to uh, look at what it says about God. What does it say about God? The answer to the question is, it puts him first. Our Father in heaven, then listen to what follows. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the first seven petitions, and there are people who would say there are seven petitions, seven is the perfect number, and therefore it is the perfect prayer. Well, I hear that. I don't agree with it. It is the perfect prayer, by the way, not because it has seven petitions. What makes it so wonderful a prayer is that it begins with God and not with man. It begins by saying, your name, your will, your kingdom, And then it goes on and speaks about us in verses 11 to 15. But but God comes first. You have the same situation in the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are all about our relationship with God. The remaining six are all about our relationship with each other. You have the same situation in this chapter in Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So the first thing it does, uh, first thing it says about God is it puts him first. Prayer is not to be like a visit to the supermarket. Nobody goes to a supermarket and says, could I speak to the manager, please? I want to speak to the manager and ask him what he would like me to have. That's a wasted That's a total waste of time because he would say, I'll bring up a 16-wheeler, load everything you like on board. We don't go to a supermarket like that. We go to a supermarket quite properly and saying, now this is what I would like. And so I will tour the shelves uh, to see if I get these particular uh, objects. But in prayer, we do begin with the manager. We do seek God's heart. We do seek to know what is his desire. And it begins, hallowed be your name. And the root of the word uh, hallowed is the Greek word ayos, which means holy, separate, and different, all of those things. The issue is not whether we address God in thou language or you language. That is, in my view, a monumental irrelevance. The important thing is that we do seek to know God's will. We do seek that above all, his name shall be hallowed. It's a petition for reverence and awe as we think of God and as we think of his name. 
and what a need there is both in the world and in the church at large for a sense of reverence and awe when we think and speak of our God and Creator. How many times and several times in the last 24 hours I've heard somebody outside of the Christian faith uh, express the term, oh my God, when something striking happens to them. That seems to be their first response, oh my God. And I suggest not a whit of reverence or awe in that phrase. That none of them is saying, in this surprising situation that's arisen, this maybe put me in a different uh, frame of mind or a different situation, or I need to act in a certain way. What I want to do most of all is to give God the glory in how I react and respond. There's none of that there. Well, that's in the world. But very sadly, in many churches and many, sir, an obvious word to use because that could mean hundreds or thousands, and I suspect it's millions of churches around the world, there is very little sense of awe and reverence. And that's most likely to be missing when the the aim, if you like, of the church, maybe the pastor and elders meeting together and saying, now what should we be seeking to do uh, in our church? The first thought is, what would people want us to do? What would attract the people to our church? That may seem a very worthy thing. And we should certainly never think and act in a way guaranteed to keep people away. But the single most important thing in the planning and the conduct of our church services and program is, what is it that God would want us to do? Hallowed be your name. And this prayer is surely also a petition that God's name would be honored in the world, be honored by our leaders and be honored in the society in which we live and move day by day. Hallowed be your name. And then the second petition, your kingdom come, the kingdom of God. The phrase is mentioned 140 times in the New Testament. And there is one sense in which the kingdom of God has already come. Here is uh, John the Baptist introducing Jesus and saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But of course, the fuller sense in which we will be able to say the kingdom has come is when Jesus returns in glory to establish the new heavens and the new earth. The second coming of the Lord Jesus is mentioned 300 times in the New Testament. That's once for every 13 verses from Matthew to Revelation. Nothing is more certain We're living at this moment in our nation, of course, in particular, at a time, and we're nearly tired of hearing it, a time of great uncertainty. Things are unclear. Business is unclear. People are unclear. Uh, Parliament is unclear. Uh, Parliament's unclear about everything these days. Um, And so we we live in a world that's that's got a great lack of clarity. We don't know what is going to happen in the future. It's quite wrong to say we don't know what the future holds. What the future holds is the Lord Jesus will return in power and great glory and will set up the new heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness in which his his people will dwell with him in glory forever. So when we pray your kingdom come, it has an eschatological element as well as a natural and day-to-day one. 
And then the next petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's such a tiny prayer, just a few words. But it's hugely demanding. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We could be excused for asking, what does that mean? That's almost too overwhelming a petition. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That must certainly mean for us here in the UK, may your will be done here in our nation. A nation which again and again, it seems that every law that affects moral issues that becomes an act of parliament in our land is steering away, is veering away from Scripture and not toward its teaching. Pam and I were in Northern Ireland uh, for the whole of last week, and Christians there, everyone that we met and talked about it, was so disturbed that without any voice on their part, the law about abortion would be completely transformed. And they were deeply grieved about it. So there surely is, uh, included in this petition, the prayer that in our society, in our nation, God's will shall be done. But I believe it's much deeper than that. A friend of mine who was blind from the time he was 18 months old, uh, blinded because of measles, would you believe, was later converted, became a very fine preacher, a very deeply spiritual man. And when he spoke on these words, he imagined him drawing a circle in the dust around his feet and then saying this, Lord, let your will be done in this bit of earth, in other words, in my life. Let your will be done in this bit of earth, as it is in heaven. Can you begin to sense what a massive, massive, deep prayer that is? How is the will of God done in heaven? Well, surely it's done perfectly. Can you imagine God's will being done in heaven? And when those doing it have done it, for God to say, well, I'm not wholly pleased with that. Surely God's will is done perfectly. I'm sure it's done immediately. I can't imagine an angel or archangel saying, yes, I'll do your will, Lord, but I'm rather pressed at the moment. Can you just hang on for a year or two? I'm sure the will of God is done fervently. I'm sure that none of the celestial beings uh, do God's will in a a haphazard, lackadaisical kind of way. So it's done fervently, it's done immediately, it's done wholeheartedly, and it's done perfectly. Now bring those adverbs into the petition. Your will be done in my life the way it is done in heaven. I can't think of a more demanding prayer at a personal level than is enshrined in that particular petition. So that's what it says about God. It puts him first. And then secondly, what it says about man. And we discover what that, the answer to that uh, point is. Give us today our daily bread. I've been told 
that that was one of the most difficult petitions to translate into our common English and easily understood language. And the reason for that is the word daily, which in Greek is epusios. And for years, translators were not able to, to just set that clearly in their minds and say that is what it means. Until, at some point in excavations and discoveries that they were able to make, they discovered something that, in effect, was a shopping list. The word apusios was at the beginning, and then a list of practical everyday items. And when this artifact was discovered, they realized, oh, this is what someone said they were going to need for this particular day. I imagine that for many of us, if we think about it for just a moment, we'll see that that is so down to earth. Uh, we live on post-its in our home, post-its and cups of tea and coffee. Uh, and every day there's a list somewhere in the kitchen near the door and the list grows as the evening goes on and the early morning goes on. And when that morning does come and it's time for Pam to go to the shops, she has a list. This is what we need for... This isn't what we need in six months' time or a year's time. This is what we need for today. And I won't go into personal details, so you're not going to hear anything further about our family life. But that's what we need today. Then surely what this petition tells us is man's utter dependence upon God every day, day by day. This is what we need for today. So the prayer is, Lord, give us, give us today what we need today. Now, there are petitions, prayers that we rightly utter and that may concern uh, next week, for example, in the 200th anniversary here, or the following month, or the following year. Uh, as the church program develops, as our own lives develop, as our families grow, there will be petitions that obviously go far beyond today, but this particular prayer reminds us that we are utterly dependent on everything from God day by day. So that's what it says about man. And then thirdly, what it says about sin. And there are three petitions left in the Lord's Prayer, uh, and they are all hugely important. And they're a preacher's dream, really, because the, the three words involved are pardon and protection and power. A row of sweet peas for the preacher to farm in as he opens this text. First of all, we need pardon. Forgive us our debts or our trespasses. And for that, we turn to the wonderful promise given to us in John's first epistle. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what a wonderful petition this is. We will rarely reach the end of a day without the need in spirit, if not in words, of course, to say, Father, 
give us pardon. There are things today which have been less, lower than they need to have been. Father, forgive us. Give us pardon. And then protection. Lead us not into temptation. The only negative petition in the whole of the Lord's Prayer. God never tempts us to do evil. So we're not praying, don't ever tempt us. But he does sometimes test us. And this petition acknowledges our weakness. It asks us, it asks rather to be kept from any test that is not absolutely necessary in God's wisdom and providence for our good and for his glory. I hope that's not too complicated. It is a petition that God will prevent us from falling or stepping into any kind of situation that has the potential to lead us to sin unless that test is intended in his wisdom to test us in such a way that facing the test and by his grace overcoming it will be to his glory and to our good. And then, of course, power. Deliver us from evil, or as should it or as it should properly be translated, deliver us from the evil one. And this is an acknowledgement again of our weakness. We should never, as Christians, uh, forget the enormous power that our enemy, the devil, has. He is the prince of the power of the air. And the devil has more power in himself than all the believers in the entire world has at any given moment. So we are up against an implacable, determined, vicious, godless, cruel enemy who has enormous resources at his disposal. And so it is surely right that we should pray to be, to be given the power to resist him. And there's a lovely verse in uh, uh, Peter's second letter in which he speaks about tests and temptations. And he uses what is in fact, depending on which translation you have, turns out to be a very modern phrase. It says this, the Lord knows how to deliver his people from these things. In other words, to use the modern phrase, God has the know-how. We find ourselves in a very difficult situation at times. We know perfectly well that we're overwhelmed by the powers against us, but we can be assured that God has got the know-how. There are so many times when we don't have the know-how, and we know that we don't have the know-how. We face a situation and may literally say to ourselves, I don't know how to deal with this situation. My friends, be assured that our Father has the know-how. So we can certainly come and ask him for the power to overcome. And then, of course, some versions of Scripture would add at the end of those petitions the phrase, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Almost certainly Jesus did not say those words. They were not part of the original text of Scripture, but they are absolutely fine. There's nothing if I can put it simply, there's nothing wrong in them because those truths are found elsewhere in the Bible and they are all true. 
the God we worship today, is king. He is almighty. He is glorious beyond our imagination. But it points us, even if it's absent from the text of original scripture, it points us in a hugely important direction. In the last few months in particular, I found myself drawn again and again, and while preaching on a number of different subjects, with the Westminster Shorter Catechism in the 17th century. And as many of you will know, the very first question asked in the Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? Now, I can't imagine a more important question that any human being should face. Here's an individual. They are born, they are weaned, they are raised, uh, they are educated, they are married, they work, they earn, they decline, they die. Well, what was that all about? Here's a, a human life in all of its fullness, its richness, its ups and down, its variety, the bewildering number of things that uh, are part of that journey. But surely the question to ask at the end of the journey is, well, what was that all about? What is the chief end of man? And the Westminster Shorter Catechism gives, in answer to that question, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I don't think it would be possible to compose words that more perfectly answered the question. So the chief end, the chief purpose of our lives, however short or long, however important or otherwise, they may be however, however uh, extravagantly gifted or not so, whatever they are, this is true of them. Their chief purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And alongside that, we put, of course, the negative statement in Scripture, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So man's chief end is that we should glorify God, and our greatest problem is we don't. That our lives, the very best of them, still come short of the glory of God. That being the situation, surely one of the very greatest needs in our life, indeed the greatest need in life, is that we come to God, confess our weakness, ask for his grace, implore him to bring about by the working and power of his Holy Spirit in our lives, day by day, the glory that is due to him. No wonder scripture says to us, ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. And we will begin to do that, begin to get a greater grasp of it as we say in our hearts, if not in public, but not excluding saying it in public, in a fellowship, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into temptation, but give us the power power that will lead to your glory being expressed more and more in our lives day by day. May God bless to each one of us the reading and the preaching of his word tonight.